hit me. From Studio P, Sausalito, home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. The number one comedy podcast about comedy... Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast commentator, Mark Hershon. This is going to be episode nine of uh, Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast, and uh, where we feature clips of comedy podcasts, but also regular podcasts that happen to have funny elements to them, mm-hmm. and people who are funny and not necessarily comedians, just right. people who enjoy humor. That would be me. I would be in that category. This is Kelly Carlin, and uh, we are in uh, her lovely home in the uh, greater Los Angeles area. <laughs> uh, so thank you for uh, letting me uh, come in and record you here. This is uh, the first Suckatash on the road Episode. Oh, I well, I'm I'm feeling very honored about that. So, very Jack Carol Carowackian about so, that in some way. So it's very exciting. Um, Kelly is a well. I guess you're a podcaster. You're you have a radio show. It's it's technically an internet radio show. We go live mm-hmm. on the actual day and time, and then of course it's podcasted to iTunes and all the other feed type of subscriber services out there. So. You know, it's all very slippery, the definition of these things. It is. It's beginning to merge more and more. It is, truly. And it's called uh, Waking from the American Dream. Yes, it is. Although, a few months ago, you you were toying with the idea of changing the title. Well, just because I thought I'd kind of hedged myself into a corner a little bit with that title. Hmm. Um, But it's also one of those titles where I feel like I can talk about anything. Because for me, Waking from the American Dream is pretty much just being an American in this 21st century. And, you know, redefining how we live, who we are, our relationship with uh, the planet, with with everything. So I can, you know, I feel like I can talk about anything. But really what I love to do is talk to people who I feel have kind of lived outside of the uh, storybook American dream version uh, mm-hmm. of the, you know, the illusion part of it. Yes. And, and have had forged their own way around that. You've been doing the show for how long? Uh, it'll be... A year next month. Okay. Yeah, which is very exciting. And when you first started, what? Where did you think it might be going? You know, I don't know, but I've I've always listened to NPR and Terry Gross and people like that, and I love radio as a medium. And so I really thought, wow, you know, I would love to someday end up on a mainstream terrestrial station with, you know, millions of listeners. Of that that would be amazing. Uh, I have this kind of Oprah-esque dream of having a little bit of a mini media empire that I I have, you know, books, television, radio, you know, these different mediums in order to express myself in in different ways. And then the live show that I'm doing. I actually shot a pilot with Rick Overton. He was one okay. of the people that uh, he... I interviewed him for my pilot, and it's a in-depth one-on-one with comedians that I wanted to do. So, and listeners of Sagatash are familiar with Rick from our episode six mm-hmm. and six point five, which was actually the the uh, interview in its entirety. Oh, nice, with Good. Rick. Now, you sometimes will have comics on. In fact, I think uh, May all of your guests were comedians. Yeah, I had a bunch in a row. You yeah, had like a, co- a comedy yeah. spree. Yeah, um, but you have people from kind of all walks of of life and existence and media and things like that. You know, when I originally uh, came up with the title for this show, it was actually a documentary. Mm. And it was before my dad died, I started working on it. And I wanted to interview people who were looking at and actually actively working uh, at shifting the paradigm 
of America's consciousness about what it means to be an American, what it means, you know, our relationship with the environment, with politics, with the economy, with each other. Uh, real big thinkers, visionary thinkers. And uh, so those are the people that interest me. I love talking to people like that. Haven't had, a, you know, had a few of them on, like Will Arnst I had on who was one of the producers of What the Bleep. So he's mm. kind of into that whole mind over matter type of stuff. And then he was involved in, in a new film. And uh, Marion Williamson I had on, who's sure. a hugely renowned spiritual teacher, um, who actually did basically therapy with me on oh, wow. my okay. show. That show was like I was in a really dark place, and she kind of helped me shift my own personal paradigm, which was great. Uh, so that's I, I'm I'm very interested. I love thinkers. You know, mm. I, I'm I am a thinker. Uh, certainly grew up with a father who was very much a thinker, uh, and people who you know I just love people who are willing to step away from the frantic nature of our culture and look at the way bigger picture. Those people fascinate me. So that's uh, the first of uh, a number of segments with Kelly Carlin, our special guest on this episode, Epi 9 of Succotash. I am your host, Mark Hershon. And uh, we're going to get back to a number of uh, cuts with Kelly. But first, I want to introduce you to her show. She is a internet radio personality uh, slash podcaster, because uh, once the show goes live, then the, uh, the clips of her show are available as podcasts. Her show is called Waking from the American Dream, and uh, I want to play a related clip uh, as we're going to get into uh, in several segments here about Kelly's father, the late George Carlin. Uh, she is uh, doing a, a, a piece of remembrance here with uh, uh, comedian Taylor Negron, who was a guest on her show, and uh, this is a, a memory from her show about uh, taking her dad's ashes back to uh, his native New York. Uh, so about a month after my dad died, he had he had a written instructions that were about 10 or 15 years old by the time he died, saying that, you know, uh, he wanted to be cremated and that his family would know what to do with his ashes. And it had said my wife and daughter, but my mom was gone. And so I took it upon myself because I knew exactly what my dad's ashes where they needed to go. So my husband and I took them in an airplane across the country to New York City. And um, so the first night we get to New York, uh, we go to Comics, uh, which is a club in kind of the village kind of area. And um, I'm going backstage to meet Richard Belzer for the first time. I'd never, I'd know, I'd met, talked to him on the phone after my dad died, did not know him. And as I'm about to walk into the dressing room, Taylor Negron comes walking out. And Taylor and I had done a spoken word show here in L.A. at Pinata about six months before that. So we kind of knew each other. We'd been on the stage together and I was like, Oh my God, Taylor. Hi, hi, hi. I go backstage and it's, it's, uh, Belzer and a few other people. Gilbert Gottfried was back there, which, um, he asked me if I had any of my dad's ashes on me when I told him what I was doing in New York. And I suddenly got afraid that he was going to ask for some or something. Uh, so, the uh, the very next day, Taylor and Logan, whose song uh, we started the thing was was doing. Uh, Taylor was doing his show with Logan. It's a, a one man, two man show, I guess you can call it, and it was called the unbearable lightness of being. Uh, Taylor Negron. It's just an amazing show. And I'd never seen it. And my uncle had never seen it. And my cousin. So we all went down to the village and um, <clears throat> met down there to see the show. And I remember at one point in the show, you have a line, something about what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or something. Yeah, I think sometimes uh, 
when you get kicked into a new, new orbit, you're getting kicked home. That's it. And you and said it's a, that line. It's a, the kick is a shortcut. Yes. And you said that line, and I'm sitting there going, he's, he's talking to me because I have been completely kicked into a new orbit. And so we went and saw the show, and the show was mind-boggling, beautiful, and heart-expanding, and, and just one of those amazing synchronistic moments. And then we all went to have dinner at this really cool restaurant outdoors in the village in this, in this open-air thing, and there's Belzer with his dog, and there's like 20 people at this table, and we're all talking about writing and performing and music and food, and I'm like sitting there going, wow, I've always wanted a community of people like this around me and artists, and... And I'd already taken the day before, or earlier in the day, uh, my uncle and my husband and cousin and I, we'd already taken part of my dad's ashes and put them up in the old neighborhood at 121st and uh, Riverside Drive near my dad's uh, old stomping ground where my dad used to smoke pot and get high when he was a kid. And we, you know, so we did a bunch of the neighborhood. So now I had a little bit of ashes. And so after dinner, myself and Belzer and Taylor and Logan and uh, Belzer's kids and a bunch of other artists and comedians and musicians, we all walked straight down Bleecker Street to the front of the Bitter End, where it was one of the places my dad had played as a young man in the early 60s at Hootenannies. And I took the ashes out and we, and there was a little tree, like, you know, like that a tree grows in Brooklyn. Well, this was like a tree's barely growing on Bleecker Street. It was the, I go by that tree all the time. I know. It's the, it was the sweetest little tree. And uh, we all took handfuls of ashes and, and put them on this, uh, around this tree on, on Bleecker Street. So if you're ever down in the village... I want to visit my dad. He's uh, surrounding that little tree there. Ah, it's a nice uh, remembrance uh, for those of you who are comedy nerds, comedy geeks, and just plain comedy fans. Uh, we've got more about uh, Kelly and her dad, George Carlin, coming up in the next couple of segments with her. Uh, personally, I got to see George perform a few times when he was uh, alive. I've been in and around the comedy scene for 30 years and was fortunate enough to catch him a few times and actually meet him once. Uh, probably about five or six years now when he was actually in conversation with Mark Pitta, a former guest on this show at the Jewish Community Center here in San Rafael, California. Uh, so I got to meet him uh, in person. Um, we've got more regular succotash with other clips. But uh, first, let's get back to another story about Kelly Carlin and her father. You mentioned your dad a couple times and being born into comedy and whether you were or weren't. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, your dad was George Carlin. Right. And he's uh, hovering right behind he you. He right is, now, yeah, actually. it's interesting. I was thinking that I should make a, a good picture for my promo for this uh, <laughs> to have fun. you sitting in front of him. That or, would be fun, yes. Um, but I, you know, I don't want to ask what was it like. I'm sure Please you, don't. you've been asked that so many times, <laughs> and people will find out when they come to see my live show. Of course, it's, they will, exactly. Of course they will. Yes. Um, but but clearly, you have a perspective on, on you know whether you were born into comedy or not. You brought, you mentioned it. So so what was the experience? When I look back on my childhood, at least, uh, it's not so much comedy. I felt like I was born into. Our, you know, our family, I believe, was caught up in a. A, a huge cultural shift going on in the country in the 60s and the 70s. And I feel like uh, we were part of that zeitgeist mm. shift. And uh, so so there's that. But, the, you know, it's interesting because the comedy thing, even though my dad was a, a stand-up comedian and I would go to his shows and see him on stage and he was making people laugh and that's how he made a living and that was his certainly his calling. Um, and I, you know, had, uh, you know, my own heroes, Lily Tomlin and Carol Burnett and people like that who I, you know, like to emulate and I wrote skits and things like that. But as far as like comedy comedy, we, it it was just not part of our life, our day-to-day life. It was, uh, 
something that other people did, I guess, or something. You know, my dad went to the theater and I would go backstage with him if I was lucky or whatever. Or we would go to the Grammys every, you know, once right. in a while. Um, but there wasn't, uh, I didn't know any comedians besides my dad. Um, I didn't hang out with comedians. I didn't go to comedy clubs. Um, in fact, I still don't. I rarely do. Unless a friend is playing for a certain kind of a thing, I rarely, I, will, I won't go to a comedy club just to see comics. Um, I barely watch. I used to barely watch him on TV until I started hanging out with Paul Provenza and started producing the Green <laughs> That's Room. That's right. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about it a and little now bit I'm as like, well. Oh shit! Now I got to figure out who these people <laughs> are. Uh, and until my dad died, um, like I said, I did not know any comedians. Of course, once my dad died, starting the day after he died, uh, some pretty amazing people started calling me okay. and uh, yeah. saying very kind, lovely things to me and. Uh, literally taking me into their families and and under their wing, so it's been a profound experience. And actually, that's how Rick and I met. Mm. Um, I think Rick and I had probably met once before that, but he came to my dad's memorial that week, and we started hanging out. Okay. And uh, it was clear very quickly that we were actually brother and sister, and uh, we had things to offer each other, you know, mm. in, in a really deep friendship. So, uh, but. But at the same time, you know, being the child of or the daughter of George Carlin, it's, you know, it freaks me out half the time. Sometimes I think, wow, he was really my dad. Like yeah. this, this, this icon, this thing, this legend, you know, so you can look at him as that and that kind of freaks me out. And then he's like, oh, he's my dad. Like, oh, he's busy and he's on the road and I just want to go have a lunch with him and could he possibly schedule me in this week? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's that. There's the dad part. Yeah. Sure. And then there's the, you know, the, the big relationship. So, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, I call this all this the magical mystery tour because I don't understand any of it. I'm just on, on the bus for the ride. All right. Well, we'll get back to Kelly Carlin just a little bit. Uh, but first I want to get to, to one of my favorite new podcasts that I've been listening to. And these are all just very short clips. It's a show called uh, Affirmation Nation with Bob Duca. Hello, and welcome to Affirmation Nation with me, Bob Duca. All right. Happy Friday, everybody. It's Bob Duca again with another listener letter. Let's see. This one reads, Dear Bob, I had a dream that a doctor suggested I bypass a fruit juice cleanse in favor of a French bread cleanse. Should I place any credence in this advice? Do you think my body is trying to tell me something? Warm regards, Kristen, Portland, Oregon. Well, Kristen, I hope that I'm answering this in time and that you have not already acted on the very erroneous advice of your dream doctor. French bread cleanses have been deemed ineffective at best and dangerous at worst. What you want is a French toast cleanse. French toast has long been recognized by ancient peoples as, as an effective way of replenishing the body's naturally occurring cinnamons and syrups. Our Western diet does not come close to providing us with the cinnamon syrup that our bodies need for proper sweetening and spicing. Some maple-based pagan nutritionists recommend that we consume a minimum of 16 slices of French toast per day. Only you can decide if this amount is too much or too little for you. During your 11-week French toast cleanse, keep a journal so that you can determine how much and which types of French toast are best for you. Good luck, Kristen. Good luck. 
All right. That's uh, Bob Duca, otherwise known as Seth Morris, who is a, a very talented uh, improv and sketch performer out of uh, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles. I uh, had the opportunity to actually do improv a few years ago with Seth at a show here at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco. And uh, I'm going to try and get him on the show as a guest because he actually does that Bob Duca character live, which you can catch on a, a recent episode of uh, Mark Maron's WTF What the Fuck show. Uh, so uh, try and uh, try and track that down. It was just a couple of weeks ago. Um, let's get back to uh, Kelly Carlin, shan't we? You told a great story when you were uh, up in Mill Valley at the uh, Mind the Gap show at the Throckmorton Theater about uh, the experience uh, of uh, holidays with your family. I think the story was about. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of you, you had a great thing of it sort of coming full circle because you were in Hawaii when you found out your dad passed away. Mm -hmm. and how that had reflected back on a family vacation in Hawaii. Yes, yes. And I thought that was really well done. It's a very touching story. Thank you. Yeah, I've I've used some of those elements for my show too. So that's part of a the big arc of my show also. And, yeah. And your reflections about uh, George are, in, are really interesting for people that were fans of his. I was a huge fan mm -hmm. and listened from the time that I heard records of him with Jack Burns, mm -hmm. you know, yes. uh, before he had his transformation, really. <laughs> yeah, you know? sure. Um, and to, to hear the humanity of him, because his act of all the big comics, his act was sort of the most human of all when he started talking about sort of real things. Mm -hmm. You really felt you were learning something about the man, but now when you hear your stories and you get to hear this extra dimension of him as a real person, it really right. does expand your respect for him in a way. Mm. At the same time, you just gain so much more of a fuller picture. So it's really a great appreciation for, on my part to be able to hear you talking about George and your experiences with him as simply a daughter to a father. Well, and I appreciate that because, uh, you know, that that's my intention is to create a more uh, 360 degree view of who he is uh, because people only see stage persona or if they're lucky enough, they had a personal encounter with him, too. Yes. But that's pretty rare. Um, and and do it in such a way that you see his humanity and yet walk away with uh, an increased sense of love and respect. I mean, you know, I'm not here to, uh, you know, I. I I look at some other people who tell the stories about their families, and some and some of the things they went through were way harsher and more insane than I mm -hmm. went through. I mean, we went through some pretty insane times around drugs in my family, you know. And there's and there's a part I think of every child who has an axe to grind with their parent over issues in their childhood, and so I, I take a lot of consciousness around that and really try to make sure that if I'm telling these stories, that I do it in such a clean way that I've set my own business. Uh, and, and worked on my own end of it so that when I do tell the story that it's just, uh, you know, done in such a, like lay, laying out the reality of it and yet done with a lot of forgiveness and love, too. There's a, a fellow that I work with who uh, knew your dad only because he was uh, a barista at George's local Starbucks <laughs> near here. And I will a daily or twice a day stop for my dad. And I will report to you, that, as was told to me, that George was the nicest of all the celebrities that happened to go to that Starbucks. <laughs> uh, and he was always nice to the people behind the counter mm -hmm. and was very was thought very fondly of by by those people. So Yes, that was that was my dad. He was very respectful of all humans. You know, he he came from a tough working class neighborhood and so he didn't see anyone allowed to be above or below mm. anyone else, you know, except when it came to the uh, 
property owners of this country, then you have yeah. a little harsher opinion of of their humanity. But <laughs> it's a little bit uh, the way that uh, some of the English um, actors and performers uh, used, at least used to treat it. I, I was fortunate enough to meet a couple guys from Python mm-hmm. uh, when they were doing press for a fish called Wanda. So mm-hmm. I got to have dinner with Michael Palin, for instance. Oh, fun! Which was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And they were blown away by the celebrity that surrounds performers. Because in England, at least at the time, and I imagine it's probably gotten a little more like it is here now, but that was in the mid-80s. Right. And he said it was really just that's the job you did. Right. You just happened to be the guy that had a show on BBC. Right. And it wasn't a big deal. And, you know, people would say hi to you because they recognized you, but they wouldn't get in your face and try and usurp your time and do all these things. Yeah, you know, I think because uh, we don't have a royalty class in mm. this country, I think that, and here I'm going to b- come from my Jungian depth psychology perspective, I think we have that need to have that archetypal energy activated in us, some mm. sort of uh, worship or some sort of putting up on a pedestal or a throne type of thing. And I think because we don't physically have that and we're all considered, quote unquote, there's no class system in this country, supposedly. <laughs> yeah, those are big, there's thick no, quotes. There's no hierarchy here. Uh, and yet we, so we create one. And I think, I think that energy has to go somewhere. And I'm fascinated with the hmm. whole idea of celebrity and fame. I actually pondered about writing a kind of a depth psychology, sociological take on it, kind of a book. Yeah, I think my dad was lucky. He never got uh, stuck in that category of the American celebrity. Like the tabloids, we were never in the tabloids. Right. People like that never drove us crazy. Um, the only time we were ever in the tabloid was when my mom got sick, which was mm-hmm. really just, that's sick in its sense, in its, in its own sense. Hello, friends. Summer may be winding down, but with plenty of warm weather still ahead, now is the perfect time to take advantage of Henderson's annual sale on Picnic Pants. You know, you shouldn't wear white after Labor Day, but don't let that old saw stop you from slipping into a pair of white and red checked Henderson's Picnic Pants. Roomy, cool, and comfortable, Henderson's Picnic Pants are a walk in the park. And once you've found that perfect spot to plop down your basket, that's when your picnic pants go into action. One firm tug achieves easy release, and the pants legs unfurl to form a ground cover wide enough to accommodate the entire family. Specially built pockets hold an entire arsenal of sporks, while the insulated pockets, both front and rear, keep plenty of coleslaw, potato salad, and condiments on ice until you're ready to eat. I know what you're thinking, what about my meat? Well, friends, with Henderson's patented concealed crotch cooler, there is plenty of space to tuck away those weenies, brats, and patties until the coals are hot enough to stick them on the grill. And with our buttocks basket, you'll be sure to have an ample supply of buns on hand. In addition to being both stain and water resistant, picnic pants are insect repellent too, which means there'll be no ants in your pants when it comes time to bid adios to your favorite park or beach luncheon spot. Originally designed for SEAL Team 6, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and the Donner Party, Henderson's Picnic Pants are now available on sale wherever fine tarpaulins and mulch are sold. That's Henderson's, makers of fine trousers and pantaloons since 756 AD. And now, back to Succotage. It's funny with my dad. I mean, I guess people people idolized him and 
and worshipped him and stuff. But now that he's dead, I I run a an official Facebook group called the Official George Carlin Fan Page, which oh. used to just be a fan page, right. and then Facebook turned it into a group or however yeah. they did recently. And it's a great group of people, and we discuss lots of big issues in comedy, and people put all sorts of George Carlin stuff. But there's a couple of people who want to call him king or this or that. Really? And they've, they're trying to kind of make him into a prophet. Mm. And I see people like in the zeitgeist movement and some of these other kind of people who are taking on um, the, you know, the system right now and the establishment. And they want to use my dad's words to kind of fuel it oh. and make him kind of the face of that. And that just, A, it worries me because I, that's, it's bullshit. And my dad would just hate that. Sure. Absolutely hate that. And, and I try to, you know, I remind, and the, and the true fans, and not even the true fans, but I think the more grounded fans in this page will remind the other fans, look, uh, this is not what George wanted. Like, his thing was think for yourself. Yes. And so if you're using his words to think for you, that's very ironic. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. A good observation. Yeah. Um, in talking about uh, this sort of getting to the humanity of, of people, let's talk a, a little bit about your role as producer of The Green Room, mm-hmm. Paul Provenza's show on mm-hmm. Showtime. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, how did you get hooked up with Paul? B, how did you get into the position as producer? And then just what is that experience like? Well, once again, Mr. Rick Overton introduced <laughs> Condu- me. Conduit of all things comedy. Conduit of all things in my <laughs> life, clearly. <laughs> Uh, said to me, kept saying, you have to meet Paul, you have to connect. And Paul had, um, of course, had my dad in The Aristocrats, and then in this book, Sanristas. In fact, um, he interviewed my dad two weeks before my dad died. I know, it was was fascinating to read that interview. Yeah, absolutely. And so he said, you have to meet Paul. So I met Paul, and we immediately hit it off, and kind of our two worlds started merging, and... um, we have like these Friday night parties here at this house and sort of Paul's community and my community came together and we've created this uh, gathering here. I call it the Polymind Commune. <laughs> uh, Polymind is my uh, kind of my word I've made up. So Paul and I started hanging out and, and his producing partner, Barbara Roman, became good friends with me too. And uh, she's part of the group here and we hang out a lot. And um, so... Uh, during the first tapings of the green room, I was in every audience. I was blown away by it. I just, it was just incredible for me. I felt like I had, that my family had even enlarged that Mm. much more. I'm an only child. So both my parents are gone. I have a couple of cousins. I have some aunts and uncles and that's it. So these are my new, this is my new family. And, uh, the first night I brought Paul a little jester pin of my dad's. And if you've seen the first season of the green room, you know, I, he acknowledges it and we have a moment together. So then last year, um, they got picked up for season two, and Barbara called me and said, do you want to be the producer, the talent producer, and help us with getting talent and helping Paul with the 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 talent portion of this? And I I used to be in television uh, behind the scenes, uh, and for me it was always like the, the kind of the day job, because what you really want to do is be in front of the camera. And I thought, oh, well, God, that's kind of going backwards for me, and it's television production and all of that. And then Barbara's like, uh, you, no, but you're working with your best friends, and <laughs> you're basically sitting around with Paul for, you know, uh, probably like four to six weeks brainstorming ideas of who to put with who. And then your job is to call the reps and to, to connect and to, to get these people on the, on the air. 
And then I remembered, and which is so funny because why I would forget this, was like, oh, but this is what my mother used to do. My mother worked for HBO for many years, right. worked on the Young Comedians show. Oh, okay. And she was the talent coordinator, talent producer. Oh, she funny. went to all the clubs and she got, she looked, I mean, Howie Mandel, Pee Wee Herman. I mean, she got amazing people on the show. And I thought, wow, so I'm actually walking in my mother's footsteps. How interesting. <laughs> yeah, totally fascinating. And so it's been a real learning curve. I mean, sitting around with Paul and getting to like enter his genius brain and how he thinks and how he connects dots and how he connects peoples and conversations is, um, that's been amazing in its sense. And I really got that I have a great sense of, um, my intuitive sense is very good. And so I use my intuition a lot with him. Like I won't even know why two names go together, but mm. it just feels energetically like they're supposed to. And I'll say it and he'll be like, oh, wow, that's genius. And I'll think, yeah, and I don't even know why, but it feels genius, right? And uh, and then the season was great because I got to uh, go to some, some comedians who've actually become very close friends of mine, some of the people who called me that first week after my dad died. And uh, and I got them on the show. And, you mm. know, these the pretty big, they are the big names on the show. And, uh, uh, you know, I got to use my whatever, you know, my relationships and they had a great time and we had a great time with them. So it was a win win. So it's been it's been really fun. And then, you know, and it's so funny, though, because it's 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 like I said, you know, I get bored easily. So it's great. It's just another like aspect of my brain that I get to use yeah. and work. And uh, the funny thing was I was in Montreal recently and I premiered my show, a Carlin Home Companion, my, my new solo show. And then the very next day, we had to do pre-production for the green room because the, ne the Saturday, we were shooting two episodes up there. So I came from this big high of premiering <laughs> my show, and I was like, you know, the toast of the Hyatt bar that night, and everyone was talking about me, and people were so upset they'd missed my show, and that, and the next day, I got these great reviews, and I'm, I'm like crying the reviews so beautiful from the, the laugh spin people and all of this, and then I'm, at the same time, I'm coordinating the uh, airport <laughs> shuttle uh, people to make sure that we got, you know, Judah Friedlander has landed and he's getting into his hotel okay. And how the fuck are we going to get Eddie Izzard to the to the venue? You know, it was like that kind of stuff. It was like, okay, I'm being humbled immediately. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's interesting to be grounded at the same time you're flying high as yeah, a kite. Yeah, know? it was great. It was, it was great. And the whole green room experience is, is a high. I mean, it's just... You know, when we start to shoot in those nights, because it's a party scene, and yeah. you bring the audience in, and it's just this momentum that builds, and it's it's really exciting, really really cool to be a part of. Uh, we will get back to Kelly in just a little bit, but first let's uh, have a clip from a, a new show we haven't heard from, Cinematic Method, and this is uh, there's five guys involved. There are only three on this clip: Kyle, Jerry, and Chris. Uh, but there's also Jared and Matt mentioned on the website. They're not in this clip. Uh, these are a couple guys uh, going from uh, the description on the website. They watch movie trailers, not the actual films. They watch the movie trailers, and then they predict what the Rotten Tomatoes score will be for the films based strictly on previews that they watch. Let's listen to Cinematic Method. So anyway, I'm here today with Jerry and Chris. I'm Kyle. And uh, we're going to be talking about this film, and we're going to predict what the Rotten Tomatoes score is going to be for it, and we're going to tell you whether you should see it or not. So how do, you, how do you feel about that? I feel pretty good about that. I mean, I don't feel good about the podcast in general. I don't think this is going to be a very good one. No, yeah. Just based on my mood more than anything else. Here's my big issue. I started watching this, and going in, I thought we were watching a trailer called Friday Night because I'm a little bit dyslexic. 
Anyway, I thought it said Friday night. Sure. I actually said out loud Fright Night several times. Didn't hear that. Yeah. And I was not seeing... Plus, I then I saw Christopher Evans' applause. I thought it was like, like a fun Friday night comedy going out to a party and maybe have some hijinks. I didn't know there was going to be a vampire. And I definitely didn't know Colin Farrell is going to be the vampire. I think what may have happened is I was saying Fright Night over and over. I said, guys, we're about to talk about Fright Night, you know, getting the right mindset. You thought you saw Friday Night, didn't put the two together, just thought it was kind of a coincidence. And then when you saw Colin Farrell be a vampire, you were even more confused. Well, going into these things, they pretty much just shut down. And for the next hour and a half, I'm not listening to anything anyone says. I'm kind of in my own world. And I'm just going to say what I say. So here's my problem with this. They're really kind of coming after my name right in the middle of this thing, aren't they? That's yes. a terrible vampire name. Are you kidding me? Do you hear him? He said, I have a terrible vampire name. They like made a point of saying that. Yeah, You're killing me. So the, vampire, me the vampire's name is Jerry. Yeah. yeah, but it's with a J. It is with a J. I don't care. It sounds the same. Yeah. So are you, you saying kidding that? kidding me? I'm saying I, have, I got a great vampire name. Try and see me sneaking up on you. I'm a vampire. You don't, though. I can't imagine. You don't have any sneakiness about you. You don't have a good vampire name also. I don't know why you're making that. You're, I'm saying, well, that's why you're drawing the line in the sand, because well, that's what, a mistake. What makes a good vampire name? Is it one that kind of disguises who you are, or is it one that, hey, says, hey, I'm, I'm I think a vampire? It's one that sounds more Transylvanian, I think, your traditionally. Name, is your what name is Dracula? That guy's probably a vampire. Let's stay away from him. Now he has no food. Meanwhile, Jerry, that sounds like a guy I want to be buddies with. That's a fair, fair point. That is a good point. He's, he's going to put his arm around me. We're going to be chums. I'm biting your neck. That is, uh, that's the best point I and think they'll be saying, ever man, made. There's no way we knew Jerry was going to be a vampire. And that's the genius of it, because once people figure out that you are, in fact, a vampire... Then you have no food. It's too late. But, but once they find out that you, Jerry, are a vampire, oh, it's too oh. late, because too you've late. already bitten them. I'm already too good of friends with you. You can't back out on me now. So that's the Cinematic Method. You can find that at cinematicmethod.com, uh, also on iTunes... And um, I, they didn't really get into the movie uh, in that little clip, but I just saw the remake of Fright Night. And I always loved the original with uh, Roddy McDowell and uh, William Ragsdale. is a really campy, classic, fun movie. This remake is just bad. Just bad. I don't do movie reviews on this podcast, but I am going to tell you, stay away from the remake of Fright Night. That's it. Let's get back to Kelly Carlin. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the uh, the polymine get-togethers. That was one of the things uh, I asked a couple of uh, the people we have featured on, on Sagatash, Rick Overton being one, uh, you know, you have anything interesting I should talk to Kelly about? Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, you got to talk to her about these amazing dinners and get-togethers that she has at her house. She and her husband, Bob, have these amazing get-togethers. And I yeah, said, oh. we, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a gatherer of people. Uh, also, you know what, I don't like to leave my house a lot. I mean, that's mm. part of it, too. And we have this groovy little setup here, which Mark can see. with yeah. This little studio, and then our backyard's got this groovy feel to it. And uh, I just love gathering people together. It just feels good to me. And... We, um, you know, years ago, Bob and I started a Sunday night thing. We'd all get together and watch The Sopranos and make an Italian mm. meal. And we would bring, you know, like five to ten people to come over and watch The Sopranos. And then we started doing these Friday night happy hours, you know, and it just was friends and stuff. And then when I met Paul and Barbara and Rick, um, you know, and we just started these, these momentum started coming together. And, and an, another place, too, is I do a lot of spoken word stuff. That's mm-hmm. pretty much my art form. 
And so I do a couple of different events around town, and one of them is called Sit and Spin, sure. which is at the Comedy Central space. And I became part of that community. Oh. And so some of the people from that community, Dylan Brody, certainly, mm-hmm. uh, Suzanne Wong, Eric Schwartz. Um, and then it just we just started making more and more connections. And now we have... I have a list of about 40 to 50 people on, you know, if I want to do one of the mass big nights, I can put the blast mm. out to, to them. And it's, it's potluck and it's BYOB or bring five bucks, put it in the food kitty because it's also the recession right now. We're yes. all starving artists. So it's yeah. like, look, I don't have thousands of dollars to, to cater a thing. So we kind of all feed ourselves. That's part of the commune part that I yeah. like to bring. And then, uh, we've discovered we have, uh, some of the most talented musicians hmm. you can imagine and they'll come into the studio here and we'll set up and we do sing-along some nights uh some nights they just jam uh, we do a lot of dancing in here uh there's a lot of drinking there's some people that have medical marijuana issues and if certainly they can imbibe <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and we just have a great time. And there's and there's like 42 different kind of scenes going on. And one scene that's always happening is Paul in the, is in the corner, Provenza is in the corner somewhere, having the most intense conversation with somebody ever. <laughs> but one of my favorite moments was, and I knew things were, it's like there's an energy that kind of started gelling here with people. And they felt safe to be here. And um, I ended up uh, meeting Roseanne Barr, and she kind of lives in this neighborhood. And uh, we started connecting personally. So... Um, Paul really wanted to get her on the green room. So I invited Roseanne over when I'm like, you should come over. Paul Provenza is going to be here and everything. So it was really cool one night. We had Paul, Rick, and Roseanne Barr at this little <laughs> table outside. And then the rest of us were just kind of standing around. And I kept leaning over to people going, it's like a movie. We've got a movie going on in my backyard right now. Because it was like the lighting was beautiful. Oh, and they were funny. having this amazing conversation about comedy and everything. And it's just... It's become this like haven for comedians and musicians, and uh, I love it. It's 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 special, and we all connect and support each other through our artistic network. Interesting. You know, we all cheer each other on. Uh, we all hire each other when someone gets a job. You know, and can spend some money on some things. So it's uh, it, you know, it's it's kind of I've always wanted to be part of. Um, you know, like the Algonquin round table and things like that. And so that's kind of what we've created here. It's, yeah, it it's seems, really- it seems uh, to be a reflection sort of like a almost ancient Greek mm-hmm. uh, thing where people would come and they would listen to Socrates and then break off into these little discussion groups, <laughs> little alcoves and chat and talk about the, yeah. the different things. Well, and it's kind of got a salon kind of feel to it. I mean, we don't like people, don't, we don't sit and like listen or anything like that, but there's music going on in here. And then there's always a party in the kitchen because there's always a party in the kitchen. And then there's people around the fire and then there's people on this other table over here and everyone's got their own little corner and their own little thing and their connection. And it's, uh, it's, it's pure joy. We love it. All right. We'll get back to more Kelly Carlin just a little bit. But first, let's dig into the Succotash Tweet Sack. Uh, the tweet sack uh, is uh, our excuse for a mailbag because nobody really sends us emails. Oh, occasionally they do. But uh, for the most part, you can either send uh, us a direct message on Twitter, or if you just put at Succotash Show on a comment, I will probably get to it because I read all that stuff. Uh, so in the tweet sack uh, this week, <laughs> we have, um, I love the sound of the tweet sack. Uh, we have uh, a message from, uh, a direct message, actually. This was, now, if you listen to episode eight, we originally had a cut from Doug Loves Movies with Doug Benson. 
And only a few listeners have that complete episode now because it has been edited following this message I received via Twitter. Uh, at Succotash Show, did you ever ask me or the producers of my podcast permission to use clips? I don't want my shit played out of context. It's long form. First of all, we don't have to ask permission. Uh, by the fair use laws in this country, uh, as the, the type of show we are, we can play clips of reasonable length. However, I don't want to piss off any podcaster. So all Doug had to do was say, I don't want to have my clips played on your show. I went back in, we clipped it out. And so now uh, episode eight is Doug Bensonless. And Succotash will remain Doug Bensonless unless we hear otherwise from Doug or his people. Um, and the benefit to me is one last podcast I have to listen to every week to try and find material. Um, we also heard from another uh, comedy podcaster friend of ours. Well, he's not really a friend, but we do play his clips. Um, and he was also in episode eight, uh, Paul F. Tompkins. Uh, we heard from P.F. Tompkins uh, on Twitter said, at Succotash Show, hey, if you're going to continue to post this, which was messages that we were playing clips from his show, the uh, Pod F Tomcast. Uh, if you were going to continue to post this, could you at least spell Tomcast correctly? I had misspelled the name of his show. So apologies to Paul F. Sorry about that. I have corrected that on the tweets. And uh, we are proud to uh, have uh, uh, presented a clip from the Pod F Tomcast. Uh, then we have a uh, we have a tweet from uh, SD Charlie at SD Charlie Succotash Show. I've subscribed via iTunes. Smiley I uh, emoticon. So thank you, SD Charlie, and thanks to everyone who has subscribed so far. You can subscribe via iTunes. You can also go to uh, our website. All that information will be at the end, uh, courtesy of our announcer, Bill Haywatt. But in the meantime, I do want to thank everybody who's been listening to the show. And if you have time, please go up to iTunes and rate Succotash Show. Uh, there's one to five stars, of course, five being good, one being, oh, why bother? And if you have time to do a little review, that's even better because we're trying to, uh, you know, bump up people being able to find us on iTunes, and that really would help. So uh, thanks to SD Charlie and everyone else who listened to us. And finally, in the tweet sack, this time uh, from Hey underscore Snowflake. Uh, who's also known as Dave Nelson, the host of Comedy A Go-Go, he tweets, uh, Succotash Show, can we send another clip if we've already been on the show? And yes, Dave, not only can you do it, you have done it, and here's your clip. When's your special coming out? Oh, I in the fall, maybe. Is that, that going to be a Comedy Central? Or yeah, it'll be a Comedy Central. It's called No Real Reason. So how is that the process of going and getting that all set up? You know, Comedy Central, your management or whoever sort of advise for you to get an hour on Comedy Central side so their hours are and you know, mine is largely decided on heat. It's like, you know, who has momentum, who has traction. The you know, Comedy Central's a business. They clearly have moments where they go, Well, we gotta figure out who's the next guy and I'm becoming famous at a rate that's faster than most of my peers. I think they wanna get on the train, you know. And I'm also releasing a music album through Comedy Central Records. So they've been pretty good to me over there. I think they're getting on board. But, you know, with any network, it's like how much of it is that you genuinely think I'm hilarious and how much of it is like a business decision where you say, this guy could be a major star soon. We'd like to license his, his hour or buy his, his hour special so we can run the shit out of it forever, you know? 
do you feel that puts pressure on you? And it says, you mean, you know, everybody has their ebb and flows in the uh, business. No, I mean, I think you know, I, I like showcasing. I think it's interesting. And when I used to showcase, I would only eat sushi and oysters all day, and I would really focus on stuff. And I would be really, you know, and I would run the set like six times a night in New York, a night every night before I went on Letterman or whatever. You know, I didn't get to do that with Conan, but. So I like the concept of showcasing. So I like the idea that, you know, this is the big show. It's like, you know, you don't play baseball just to, like, you know, play the piddly games. You want to do the World Series games. You want to be in the World Series. And this is a World Series game. By the way, I don't know anything about baseball or watch it, really. But um, the analogy still holds. And so for me, it's not the only pressure is that I, I want to do well. I want to showcase and do do my shit and have people be like, dang, that was a really good special. Well, how, how do you prepare for that special? I mean, what was your writing like for that oh you know i just uh you know i just kept sh- i shave my act like i do anytime which is i come up with ideas and try to hash them out on stage and some things are written and work and other things are improvised and i keep them and i just kind of build an hour that i feel is representative of me which is sort of part characters part improvisation part absurdist stuff part um part observationalist part real life stories and uh i kind of have what i think is a good you know, hour and 15 minutes worth of that for uh, Comedy Central, and then they'll cut it down, and, you know, we'll kind of put it together. So that's Comedy Agogo, friend of the podcast Dave Nelson, with his special guest T.J. Miller, who is a comedian and actor, was in the movie Cloverfield and a, a number of other films, has another film coming out, uh, so look for him. Uh, comedy Agogo is a free-flowing discussion about comedy, comedians, and a gamut of other stuff and junk, according to Dave's website. You can catch that at uh, dvnelson.podbean.com, or to save yourself having to write that down, just go to iTunes and look for Comedy A Go Go. Here's Kelly Carlin. I've got a question from uh, Will Durst, uh, who does a feature on our show called The Burst of Durst. Where do you think comedy is going as we move into the 21st century? Wow, it's, you know, it's a good question. And I, you know, I, I look at, I mean, let's just look, I mean, forget the clubs. I think the clubs, well, we could talk clubs too, but I, I mean, and I'm not an expert at all, but. I look at just on television what we have as far as stand-up comedy goes. And you have Comedy Central, which I feel for the most part has no idea what comedy is, mm. actually. <laughs> Very confused by their programming. Every once in a while I'll hit a stand-up show where I can actually listen to it, and maybe the whole thing. Most of the time, after five minutes, I'm changing the channel. Uh, it Because it seems like it's the same old bullshit. Um Certainly The Daily Show and Colbert. Uh, Colbert, I think, is... I mean, I love Jon Stewart in The Daily Show and what he does, but I, uh, Colbert is just such a genius yeah, at there's, satire. There's it, genius in that, definitely. incredible what he does every night in that staff. Um, and, you know, thank, thankfully to Mr. Paul Provenza, who's really brought me into the comedy world and has introduced me. I mean, <laughs> half the time, Paul and I will be sitting around, he'll go, so do you know... Bo Burnham will, he will be the uh-huh. one. I'll be like, no, not familiar with that. Okay, here, here's the thing. Go to the video, listen to the room. And thank God for Paul, because he's the one who's turning me on to yeah. smart, uh, thinking people who are funny, who are pushing an edge, who have something to say, who make you laugh. I mean, these are all things for me that are important about comedy. Um, I believe, you know, my father taught me that 
com comedy is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Nice. Yeah. You know, so that that's the line I see. I love and pure entertainment too. Lucille Ball, I grew up on. I mean, I love that kind of stuff, as my dad did too. I mean, goofy shit. My dad and I would, you know, we'd go to a Peter Sellers movie, a Pink Panther movie, and my father would be crying, you know. Love the goofy shit too. But uh, but there's something about, uh, you know, if I really don't care about your husband or wife jokes or your dick jokes. I yes. mean, and, and a dick joke can be funny, sure, certainly. And so can husband and wife jokes. But, uh, you know, I, I like people being creative. So, I don't know. I think something's shifting. I mean, I see the success with like Mark Maron's podcasts mm -hmm. and, and maybe just because we're in the comedy bubble and we see this. I don't know if the average person in the world gives a shit or not, but, but I, I, I see, I see that giving me hope. And, you know, it was, somebody was on, I don't know, it was Facebook or somewhere talking about how they, as, as a stand up, they love making people laugh, but part of what they want now is to connect to people's hearts hmm. also. And, you know, I see that. I see that, like, with, with Mark Marin. Um, I see that, like, with what well, Paul's doing on The Green Room. You mm -hmm. know, it's like he wants to get beyond... Uh, I mean, he, being funny is obviously very important to the show, but, but there's something he's looking... There's a, a human connection he's trying to get to. Uh, I spend a lot of time with Gary Shandling. His whole transition right now mm. is going from being a man who has to stand on stage to be funny to a man who just wants to have a series of authentic moments with an audience. There's something about authenticity that I think is happening. And I know for me, one of the reasons I never pursued stand-up comedy was A, uh, that would be crazy. No. Uh, <laughs> and B, my father basically <laughs> forbade, forbade you yes. from doing it. Uh, for many reasons, but um, but I had no desire to make my whole job about my whole job was to just make people laugh. Yeah. That does not work for me. For me, it's if I can make a real connection with you and make you feel something or have a, a new perspective on something and laugh. I mean, yes, I have comedic timing and how to use it and all that kind of stuff. But the, the pressure to just be funny. ugh, no way. No, thank you. I don't want any, any of that. So I'm excited because I feel like my, my art form and what I've always wanted to do is be able to have a chance to make you laugh or make you cry. But really, I just want to take my mask off and have you take your mask off and say, look, we're all human beings here just trying to figure this shit out. Uh, let's stop giving each other such a hard time. Uh, so for me, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of loving some of this strangely softer, sensitive stuff coming out of really uh, intellectually uh, smart, you know, people. Yeah. You know, I look at Greg Proops also sure. who's like that. You know, he's just this amazing human on stage with the most wicked fucking sharp mind ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, my one of my earliest uh, improv experiences was being in a group with Greg. Mm. Ah. We uh, adopted him and Michael McShane into the group I was running, which was the Comedy Underground. His their group Fault Line in San Francisco had just fallen apart, mm. and uh, so they're sort of like improv orphans. So uh, <laughs> we took them in, and they're but the two of them are amazing. But Greg is. Uh, uh, a force to be reckoned with. Truly, yeah. truly. And such a deep, beautiful human being. You know, yeah. just, oh, wow. All right, well, we will uh, wrap up with Kelly Carlin in just a little bit. In the meantime, uh, we have a few more podcast clips to get to, and uh, including this one from the Mad Ranters. Now, according to their website, 
Uh, the Mad Ranters is an open forum in which nothing is sacred approach is taken uh, when discussing annoying topics. Uh, this is, again, one of those shows where I can't quite figure out who anybody is. Their website doesn't have a whole lot of names on it, except the name Angus. And uh, Angus does uh, an offshoot of the Mad Ranchers, which we're going to hear from here, uh, where he's talking about, uh, I guess this is a segment called Driving with Angus. So let's give a listen. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Car Ride with Angus. Almost forgot. Uh, this is Mad Ranchers Associated, because I'm angry. I'm just not speaking as if I were. I'm hiding it well, concealing it even. Today we're going to talk about the assholes who drive in the middle lane. They go in the middle lane and they go the speed limit, maybe five, ten miles over. But if there's a middle lane, it means you're on a highway such as 295. And if there's enough room for three lanes of traffic, if you're in the middle, your ass better be going faster than the people in the right lane. If you're in the middle lane and people are passing you on the left, that's going to happen. If you're in the middle lane and people are passing you on the right and the left simultaneously as and blowing their horn cursing at you, maybe you're doing something wrong. Just a thought. I thought of this yesterday as I was driving down 295. The other day. It wasn't even yesterday. But I took a day off from driving yesterday. Didn't drive at all. I'm behind this person. I don't know. Man, woman, whatever. Child. I don't know, maybe he couldn't see over the steering wheel because he was a seven-year-old who stole it and was going to grandma's. I don't fucking know or care. But simple, common courtesy is to drive fast enough that you're not getting passed by people in the right-hand lane if you're in the middle. I know you're going to say, well, hey, you know, I don't want to be in the right-hand lane because people are merging and all this other stuff and then I got to slow down. You don't have to slow down that much because you're not going fast enough. That's what the, you know, the speed-up lanes are for. Of course, sometimes they don't have them, or they're not long enough, or you're just not paying attention and looking around. Just try that sometime. Stay in the right, because you're not going fast enough, because people are passing you in the right-hand fucking lane, cursing and flipping you off. There's your hint. Get the fuck over and out of my way. Thank you. All right, Angus, thank you for your kind words. I happen to agree with you, uh, although I... I don't know if I'd state it the same way, but that's okay. That's what the Mad Ranters are all about. Uh, you can hear Angus and the rest of his uh, crew at themadranters.com. Uh, or, of course, on iTunes. Uh, let's get now to our Burst Durst with comedian Will Durst. Hey, guys. Will Durst here with a few final words about the debt ceiling deal that both Congress and the President agreed to but are now treating like a dead fly in their glass of 25-year-old scotch. Hidden in the agreement was a provision forming a committee responsible for future deficit reduction, 12 members appointed by party leaders from both House and Senate, whose mission, should they accept it, is to dig up $1.5 trillion in further budget reduction by Thanksgiving Eve or risk triggering automatic cuts. Doomsday cuts. A majority of the committee has to agree to send the proposal to the whole of Congress, who will either vote up or down with no amendments allowed. Equally split between Republicans and Democrats, it means one member will have to cross party lines, which is about as likely as a single-winged monarch butterfly winning the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament. The committee is commonly referred to as Super Congress. Slower than a slug on Thorazine, less powerful than soggy Kleenex, unable to compromise in a million years. Look, 
Up in that swiveling leather club seat in that private jet. It's a ruse. It's a sham. It's Super Congress. Yes, Super Congress. Strange hybrid from another reality. Come to Capitol Hill with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal members. Super Congress, who can change the course of appropriations, bend ethics regulations with a wink of an eye, and who, disguised as the United States Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, mild-mannered functionary of the Hall of Invertebrates, fights the never-ending battle against truth, justice, and the American way. And when that doesn't work, we can move on to the next step and call in Super Duper Congress. Or get that guy who talks backwards and doesn't make any sense. What's his name? Oh yeah, Mitch McConnell. For Suckatash, the podcast and comedy podcasts, I'm Will Durst. And there's your burst of Durst. You can find him at uh, www.willdurst.com. Also catch his tweets at Will Durst on Twitter. And that's going to bring us to our last uh, closing segment with Kelly Carlin. Uh, let's uh, just uh, give us a little information how people can find uh, Waking uh, from the American so Dream. So Waking from the American Dream, I'm on NewDissidentRadio.com. You can find me on iTunes. Just type in Waking from the American Dream. And then whatever the Android version of the iTunes, there's another kind oh, of okay. feed, too, that, that people have. I know we're on that. And uh, and you can find me on Twitter, Kelly underscore Carlin. And uh, you can find me on Facebook, personal page, public page, Waking from the American Dream page. Come check out my official George Carlin fan group. If you asked to be come in, I'll let you in. <laughs> but you have to play nice. What do you want to tell people that would sort of uh, maybe juice them up for being a supporter of podcasts and maybe spreading the word? Well, you know, I, I, I think podcasting is the... Maybe it is part of the new version of the American Dream. Hmm. Uh, it's based on a uh, the long-term tradition of all of us get to have our own little corner and our own little soapbox and speak our mind here in this, this great nation. We still get to do that here, believe it or not, people. Uh, you, we still live in a country where, yes, even with a lot of our civil liberties have been... Uh, uh, threatened and taken away, we, we still get to say speak our mind. So it's it's an exciting thing, and, and so y- y- you know I don't know. There's uh, there's something about about that that I think is important, and I think there is something about building community here. That it's it is a way to find like mindedness and not feel so alone on this big blue ball that's mm-hmm. hurling through space. That there are other people who are thinking your thoughts. And uh, and have the uh, maybe the skill or the talent or the resources to put them together in a way that articulates them well for you. Uh, you know, one of the things I love about podcasting is anyone can do it. And like you said, you'll either get an audience or you won't. Because sometimes I listen to some of those earlier podcasts from like a few years ago, and I thought, literally, this is a guy sitting in his bedroom talking to a microphone, and I could give a shit at this point. So, you know, it, it yeah. takes some skill, you know, to figure out how, how to engage an audience, how to present ideas, and how to invite them in, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm just thrilled there is a podcasting audience. I want to 
thank everyone. I thank them every week, people who listen to my podcast, people who take the time uh, to download it and take yeah. an hour out of their week. And figure out how to listen to it. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's huge because I know my time is, is you know, is precious to me. And I, I can't listen to everyone I want to listen to. Uh, that's what's so great about your show is you get to have a piece of everything and you kind of even get to like, it's a menu in some ways. Well, maybe this week I'll go try out that person yes. or see yeah. what that's like. Um, boy, I wish I had... Um, 10 hours a day to listen to all the great, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, because there's so much to choose from. But uh, I really do appreciate that people take the time and uh, and support what we're doing. You know, thank you. Great. Well, I appreciate you taking the time and talking to us, Kelly. Thanks so much. My pleasure. This was great. Honored guests, you've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Arkmay Urshanhey. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, follow us Faye on Intertway at Suckatash Show, and us Frey on Facebook Faye, or email us at marc at SuckatashShow.com. Suckatash is produced and engineered by O.J. Alinope at Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our musical director is Atske RVK. Our booth assistant in absentia is N.E.K. Urges Day. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Ilbay. 14 days clean and sober, Awad Hey, reminding you to please pass that Suckatash and... I was never on your own.